You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefe, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When you look back on the second buccaneer incursion into the Pacific, you can see that it was really the death rattle of the buccaneering era of piracy. It's a story of frustration and incompetence and failure. There was a failed attack on Guayaquil. There was a failed attack on Panama and a failed attempt to capture the treasure fleet. Aside from capturing a few stray merchantmen here and there, the pirates in the Pacific had no real successes. Now, there had been a few smaller prizes taken. Peter Harris the Younger had captured Santa Maria. His crew was well off. They had sacks full of gold dust. Frankly, I'm surprised that they didn't turn around and return home. But they weren't rich men, not yet. They stayed in hope of that one huge windfall of Spanish silver. But it never seemed to materialize. When we look back, that attempt on the treasure fleet outside Panama is usually seen as the last gasp of the buccaneers. The French and Dutch pirates in the West Indies up north, well, they were all settling down. Lorho de Graaf, Mikhail Andrezun, Jan Willems, they were all buying farms at Cap Francais or leaving the West Indies altogether. The English and French pirates in the Pacific didn't realize that the buccaneer era was coming to a close, not yet at least. They were just living their lives, trying to survive. They were hoping for a prize worth taking home. They didn't know that the sun was setting on the first era of the golden age of piracy. Some of the pirates on this voyage would be directly responsible for that shift into the second era of the golden age of piracy. They weren't the big names, not that we know of at least, but they were paving the way for the big names to come. For example, there was a pirate on board Bachelor's Delight, a regular crew member named George Rayner. He wasn't anybody of note here in the Pacific, but he would go on to captain a ship and sail alongside Thomas II and Henry Avery. It's worth noting that, according to some, these pirates weren't even living in the golden age of piracy. That definition, that distinction is ambiguous. Some historians consider the Age of Sail in its entirety to encompass the Golden Age of Piracy, the Age of Exploration and Colonization. And I'm working with that definition in mind. That's why I chose to begin the Pirate History Podcast with Sir Francis Drake. He was kind of like 
Well, you know when you hear about really early computer scientists? Drake was kind of like one of those World War II-era scientists with a compound out in the desert. They had whole buildings full of tape that were capable of doing basic math and really little more. The bones were there. They were programming computers, and Francis Drake was stealing Spanish silver in America. But the similarities tend to end there. And the buccaneers, similarly, were rarely actually pirates. Morgan was a privateer. Most of them were privateers, and all of them got their start on privateering vessels. The real, true pirates were few and far between. But here in the Pacific, we see that divide between legitimate privateers and outright pirates in stark contrast. That's why some historians choose to use this moment as the dawn of the golden age of piracy. These late buccaneer-era pirates were actual pirates, not privateers. At least the English here in the Pacific were. And that definition is really helpful when looking at piracy from an Anglo-centric point of view. Many of these pirates would go on to sail in the Red Sea and the coast of Africa. The most famous pirates, those from the Pirate Republic at Nassau, they were, well, most of them weren't even born yet, and if they were, they were toddlers. Benjamin Hornigold, Edward Teach, Charles Vane, Woods Rogers, well, all of them were five years old when these pirates in the Pacific lost their battle outside of Panama. Jack Rackham would have only been about three, and Mary Reed was actually born in 1685, probably while this voyage was underway. Anne Bonny and Steed Bonnet and Edward England and Ed Lowe, well, they hadn't even been born yet. And those are all the major players in the last great drama of the golden age of piracy. But their particular brand of free, anarchic, usually British piracy, that, that brand from which all of the tropes and myths and pop culture images of piracy spring, well, that started here in the Pacific in 1685. This is episode 66, Swan Song. After their raid on Pueblo Nuevo, and actually the town that was attacked was named Remedios, the island was named Pueblo Nuevo, the English and French factions in the Buccaneer fleet in the Pacific were at odds with one another. They decided to split up and go their separate ways. Now the first order of business for both companies was to construct canoes. They had discovered that taking a treasure ship was out of the question, and that the local governments weren't going to let any shipping of value set sail unless they were part of a convoy full of well-armed warships. Now Dampier writes disparagingly about Spanish military power. He scoffs at their rusty guns and their rotten ships and their infantile naval strategy, all while getting beaten at Panama and chased around the Pacific and frustrated in every attempt they had to steal any treasure whatsoever. Remember, outside of Peter Harris, the most valuable cargo any of these pirates had stolen thus far was that haul of flour about a year back, which they were still eating, as it turns out. They were, well, there were those slaves that had been captured outside Guayaquil, but no mention seems to be made of them after the fact. They were probably being sold quietly to small villages and farms along the coast. Locals in the region would have saved a fortune, buying them as human contraband, illegally sold slaves, and Dampier would have 
kept quiet about that. Any unlicensed slave trading he may have been privy to could have seen him thrown in irons. A little bit of piracy could be brushed aside for gentlemen of quality, but slave trading was messing with the British East India Company, and that would not be tolerated. So they needed canoes to row ashore and to take targets on land. Pueblo Nuevo was filled with trees suitable for canoe construction, so the pirates set about doing so. Now, they were split up, so they actually did it at different ends of the island. Making a canoe is a relatively simple process. You cut down a tree, you cut it just a bit longer than you actually want the canoe to be, and then you use the excess to make oars. Then you shear one side flat, lie it on that flat side so it will sit steady and shape the hull. Then you flip it over and hollow out the inside. The problem here is that these pirates didn't have any fine woodworking tools on hand. They had some tools, I mean, they needed tools to maintain a ship, but most of the pirates building canoes were reduced to using axes and hatchets to shape and hollow out their canoes. It was a lot easier to make a mistake with those tools. Some of them even made the mistake of using already fallen trees, which is incredibly stupid. They were invariably already rotting. More than a few pirates over the following months were surprised to find their canoes suddenly and unexpectedly sinking because they'd used a soft, rotting wood. Now, two weeks into this canoe-building adventure, the French ship under Groinet sailed into view around the island. Things were tense between the English and the French, and more than a few pirates probably armed themselves, but they were still officially friendly. Groinet was leading in another ship, though, an English vessel, under Captain William Knight. Now, he was that captain that had arrived before this Pacific incursion really got underway. He'd been raiding the coast of Mexico up to the northwest. You might remember that bark of Captain Knight's men that arrived at Santa Maria. It had the intent of crossing the Isthmus, but, well, here we meet their captain. I get the impression that the two factions here, the English and the French, were... Well, relations were strained, but they remained polite. The French brought Knight in, and it was like, Oh, that's very nice of you. Oh, thank you very much. You're very welcome. No, you're too kind. That sort of thing. Captain Knight had been a bit more successful than the rest of the pirates, except for Harris, so far. All on his own, he'd taken a number of villages on the coast of Mexico. Small villages, no rich prizes, but he'd made a living. More recently, he'd captured La Serena. That's the place where Peter Harris the Elder had actually died on the first Pacific adventure. He had learned some very important information from the Spanish there at La Serena, information that Captain Davis and Groinet and all the rest of the pirates needed to know. He'd been searching for the pirates ever since. It turns out that the treasure fleet out of Lima was going to sail around the pirates to reach Panama and intended to arm their best warships and attack the pirates from the west. He had word of a trap that had already been sprung outside Panama. He had learned of it before the battle, but he hadn't been in time to warn the other pirates. They were, at the time, trying to avoid notice. It's possible that the pirates had actually seen the sails of Captain Knight's captured Spanish brig and hidden from him. They thought he was the enemy. The few French pirates on board Captain Knight's ship chose to join up with Groinet. 
and they returned to the other side of the island. The French company was a pitiful thing. They had the Santa Rosa, the ship that had been gifted to them, that zero-gun merchantman. She was captained by Captain Francois Groinet, and carried most of the French crew. That included Ravno de Lusanne, the man who was writing the chronicle of their events, as well as Jean Rose, Pierre Le Picard, and Jean Lescouillet, as well as Mathurin de Marais. Now, I've actually been mispronouncing his name so far. Usually I've said it something like de Martez, and I knew that was incorrect, but I couldn't find a reliable source on how to pronounce his name. It ends with an S-T-Z, which confounded me. Thanks to a Reddit user named Murderous Squirrel, I actually found out that that particular naming convention would have died out around 1700, and Mathurin's name would have been pronounced De Marais. Before the French left, the English told them that they were planning to attack the city of Lyon off the coast of Mexico in modern-day Nicaragua. Lyon was one of two cities founded by the conquistador Francisco Hernández de Cordoba. The other was Grenada on Lake Nicaragua, which Henry Morgan occupied for several months back in 1666. Now, Lyon lays about 20 leagues northwest of Grenada. Its original location was on the shore of Lake Managua, and that was founded back in 1524. However, the nearby volcano, Momotombo, had a series of destructive eruptions in 1610. So the people of Lyon moved their city about six leagues inland, away from the volcano and the lake. It's a landlocked city. It has no access to the sea. There is a river nearby, but not close enough to storm the walls by canoe. The pirates would have to march into Lyon. In 1685, Nicaragua was still part of the Viceroyalty of Nueva España. Now that Viceroyalty stretched from San Augustine in Florida to California, all down through modern Mexico and Guatemala, El Salvador, Belize, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama, all the way down to Darien, where the swamps and jungles make holding the land too difficult. That's not to mention, Nueva España also had Cuba and Santo Domingo and Puerto Rico and the Bahamas. It was, it's safe to say that in 1685, the viceroy of Nueva España, Don Tomas Antonio Manuel Lorenzo, was the most powerful man in the Spanish Empire. Now, you might be thinking, what about the king? Remember, though, King Charles II of Spain was the child of generations of Habsburg inbreeding, and he was severely mentally and physically disabled. Will Durant described him as, quote, short, lame, epileptic, senile, and completely bald before 35, always on the verge of death, but repeatedly baffling Christendom by continuing to live, end quote. His mother, Mariana of Austria, served as regent in his name. Now, she may have very well been the most powerful person in the Spanish Empire, excepting, arguably, the Pope himself, but New Spain made Don Tomas Antonio, let's say, number three. So Nicaragua was not yet an independent state, but it was a separate administrative district. It was a colony within the Viceroyalty of Nueva España. Leon was the capital of that administrative district, and it showed. It wasn't one of the richest cities in New Spain. It had nothing on Havana or San Juan, but it was a prosperous capital. It could be compared to, say, Cartagena or Port Royal, even. Today, the jewel of Leon's architecture is the Lady of Grace Cathedral. 
Now, construction on that cathedral wouldn't begin until 60 years after these pirates left the Pacific, but one element of that construction was already in place. That region of Nicaragua is volcanic and suffers frequent earthquakes. Thus, when they were building large structures in Lyon, the people built cellars underneath their building to help absorb the impact of the tectonic activity, as well as to serve as a sort of bunker, should any earthquakes or eruptions occur. Those cellars were well stocked with provisions. Then, as the city grew, industrious architects began to excavate tunnels between some of those cellars. Eventually, when Our Lady of Grace was completed, there was a network of cellars that connected all of Lyon's primary religious institutions. That network was, well, it was considered necessary to defend against English pirates. The bones of that tunnel system, though, were already in place in 1685. For example, one might enter the Church of San Sebastian, the oldest church in Lyon, built from adobe instead of stone. From there, you could enter the tunnels and travel to the Church of San Francisco to visit a courtyard surrounded by lemon trees and royal palms around a glorious fountain. From the Church of San Francisco, you might go underground in 1685 to the Church of San Nicolas Tolentino. Now, that's the oldest stone church in Leon. It was commissioned by Philip III of Spain himself. Or you might choose to go to the Colegio de San Roman, a seminary college. Or there was the Chapel of La Asuncion, which was also connected to those tunnels. However, that actually didn't have that name in 1685. It was just an Episcopal mansion. But it had only been completed seven years before the pirates arrived. And then there was the newest religious building in Lyon, the Church of San Philippe. It was the largest church in the city at the time, if the least extravagant. It encompassed, and still today encompasses, a full city block. It was the house of worship for any people of color in Lyon. Those tunnels that were built under Lyon were built in case of earthquake, but they also were used frequently to defend against any attack that might come. Usually those attacks came from the local Native American population, but they were expanded and reinforced because of the pirate raids that were about to happen. The English pirates under Captain Davis were preparing for the first of those pirate raids. The French, though, had other priorities. They didn't have any big guns, or really much in the way of supplies. So Captain Groenet and most of the French crews decided to sail east to try their luck on the coast of Peru. All the English pirates, at least most of them, had already tried their luck on the coast of Peru, and it didn't go terribly well. A few French pirates, though, thought it best to join up with the English. William Dampier writes, quote, The 18th day of July, John Rose, a Frenchman, and 14 more belonging to Captain Gronet, having made a new canoe, came in her to Captain Davis and desired to serve under him, and Captain Davis accepted of them because they had a canoe of their own. End quote. Now, that's only 15 pirates. That doesn't signal a major schism among the French, but it does strike me as odd. You might remember Jean Rose had more reason than anyone else to dislike the English, especially Edward Davis and William Dampier and about 50 other pirates that had betrayed one of his close friends. Still, he chose to sail with them for their attempt on Lyon. Now that attempt would have to begin at a town called Rialejo, 
which was the first significant Pacific port north of Panama. It was fed mostly by the traffic in slaves and goods from Panama and Lima that would be carried inland to Leon or Grenada. It also served as a port to export all of the goods from Leon and Grenada. It wasn't a massive port like Cartagena, but it was busy enough. But they didn't have the defenses in place that Cartagena or Maracaibo did, since they had never needed to worry about pirates before. Not until now. But the rest of the Frenchmen at Pueblo Nuevo weren't going to Lyon. They needed a new plan. It's odd how command is structured in these situations. All of them sailed under Captain Francois Groinet of the Santa Rosa. However, there were still separate crews led by former captains who didn't have a ship at the moment. Groinet had his crew of loyal men, as did Mathurin de Marte. There were men who followed Pierre Le Picard or Jean Lescouillet. Their men served under their particular leader, but on board the Santa Rosa, they all followed the command of Captain Groinet, as far as, you know, pirates could be said to follow any captain. Captain Groinet's first move was to send off 120 men in canoes to raid a small cattle plantation. They needed the food, first of all, but more importantly, perhaps, they needed intelligence. They took prisoners at that cattle plantation and interrogated them. What they wanted to know was if the Spanish had any notion of the split between the two factions of buccaneers. Did they know that the French were alone, that the English had left the region and headed off to the northwest? These cattle farmers and slaves had no idea. They had been raided recently, but not by pirates. They'd been raided by the treasure fleet out of Lima, the same fleet that trounced the pirates a few weeks earlier. To the cattle farmers, though, it didn't feel much different than a pirate raid. It still saw hundreds of armed men enter their homes and demand that the farmers pay their taxes. Now, those taxes were usually paid in coin and wine and beef and grain, but if they didn't have enough of those things, those soldiers might take an evening of pleasurable company with their wives and daughters. What difference would it make that these were king's men rather than English pirates? The only real difference is that those Spaniards wouldn't have burned down the church. Now, the pirates also took some cattle here, but they didn't take much else. They didn't have much else to take. However, the people on that cattle ranch did know where the pirates could find a decent haul, and considering their recent treatment, they were willing to share the news. Revno de Luzon writes, quote, on the 15th, we went ashore, and though we had no guide, we got by cock-crowing to a very pretty estancia, as they call it. And an estancia is an estate, but would be more accurately translated as a ranch. Usan goes on, where we took 50 prisoners of both sexes. Among these, there was a young man and woman of quality who promised we should have a ransom for them, and whom we carried to the island of Iguana. End quote. They raided the estancia of all her valuables and found a considerable amount of wealth. Somehow, the estates of men and women of quality were never raided, or, I'm sorry, taxed, at the same rate that the estates of the poor were raided. They made a pretty penny there at the estancia, and then they waited until the 28th, when their ransom was duly paid. The young man and woman of quality were probably treated relatively well, as far as... Pirates can be expected to treat people of quality. 
But I do worry about the fate of the other prisoners, most especially since Lusan makes special note of the women they captured. They may have had a terrible experience. Or perhaps not. The pirates were, after all, hoping to receive a ransom. But stories like this... Revno de Lusan just blows by the capture, captivity, and eventual release of these prisoners in two sentences. But for the people involved with these pirates, those 13 days at the mercy of the French buccaneers must have been a truly terrifying and terrible experience. The world was a different place in 1685, sure. People were familiar, more familiar than we are today with the dangers of the world, and there were less safeguards in place. But 15 days in captivity, among the most terrifying men in the world, they had the most terrible sort of brutality constantly hanging over their head. What would that do to someone? Even if they weren't tortured or murdered, wouldn't that experience, wouldn't the fear of that experience change your life forever? But maybe the pirates were consummate gentlemen. It's entirely possible. Remember, these are privateers, after all. Maybe they fed the prisoners well. Maybe they saw to their comforts and perhaps even sat down to hold religious services with them. After all, they were all Europeans here. They were all good Catholics. Maybe these French privateers strove to display that they were not, in fact, the villains they were made out to be. This was, after all, just business. When the ransom was paid, though, the pirates moved on. They released the prisoners and sailed off to meet the other 200 or so pirates back at Pueblo Nuevo. It was actually fewer than Ravno de Lusan was expecting to see. The French commander, Groinet, had undertaken his big plan while Lusan was away. And that big plan was to attack Remedios. Again, the same place that they had just attacked a few weeks prior. Now, that should be easy. The people of Remedios had just been beaten. They would still be weak. I don't know exactly what the pirates hoped to gain from the raid. After all, the town had just been picked clean. Although maybe, and I kind of like this idea, maybe they'd hidden away some treasure on their previous raid. Maybe when the English and the French raided the town together and they were having disagreements with one another, the French... Well, they watched the Englishmen ransack and defile Catholic churches there in town. Maybe they hid away some prime plunder that they didn't want to share with those English heathens. It is suggestive to me that they split up from the English after the raid and then immediately returned. However, Jean Rose, who left Groinet and his French compatriots behind, may have had the right idea. He was more experienced than any of the other French pirates, excepting Pierre Le Picard, but maybe he just had a better understanding of human psychology. Captain Francois Groinet expected the Spanish inhabitants of Remedio to be weak. Instead, they were vigilant. When they went ashore, Ravno de Lusan writes, quote, They got upon a rising ground with their arms and as much ammunition as they could save, and fought stiffly against us under a flag of defiance. The place where we landed was exposed to their fire from the ground where they had posted themselves. The ascent on that side where we stood was very difficult. End quote.
Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Last time they had surprised the people of Pueblo Nuevo. They had come upon them when they didn't expect anyone to attack. Now, the people were afraid and they were armed, and they defended themselves. The pirates lost about a dozen men in their attempt to take the town. Ultimately, they were rebuffed. There was a far stronger presence not only of people who were expecting attack, but there were actually Spanish soldiers there to harden their backbone, and they had proper lookouts in the region, waiting for the pirates to return. But if I was right, and that's a big if, but if the pirates did stow away some of the best treasure in Remedios, say, a bag full of gold coins or pearls or rubies, that's the kind of stuff they don't have in towns like Remedios, but even if they just had a bag full of silver, well, that might have been a decent haul for the pirates. How would it feel? What kind of frustration and consternation would it cause when you are prepared to go collect your prize and then defeated and pushed back from a prize you know is there? They had a bit of a consolation. The pirates captured a bark filled with supplies, mostly food, soap, and brandy, that sort of thing. And then they decided to careen their vessels. When they had a good supply of food and drink, that's a good time to spend a few days on the beach, not risking your life at the point of a Spanish saber. The bark that they had captured did have a few guns on board. Nothing earth-shattering, but big guns. They had powder and ammunition, and that's better than no guns, no powder, and no ammunition. So the pirates collected wood and water. They cleaned their hulls. They repaired some of their sails. And then they decided to find the English and join up with them. Lusanne writes, quote, 
On the seven and twentieth, the English sent a quartermaster to us to know whether we would join ourselves with them, as they were too weak to go and take the town of Lyon, on which they had formed a design. And here we must acknowledge that extreme misery is so terrible a thing that it is almost impossible, when an opportunity presents itself, that it should be let slip, notwithstanding all the repugnancy of our reason to the contrary. We had left the English by reason of their impieties, which we could not endure, and now we were ready to comply with the proposals they had made us of rejoining them again. The provision was on their side, and this was a charming bait for people that were ready to perish with hunger. End quote. So the French were ready to overcome their differences with the English. They were hungry. They were poor. They didn't have any good prizes on the horizon. I think that's a good plan. Work together to attain a goal. Even if that goal is plunder and burning, well, a rising tide lifts all boats. Am I right? But there's one major glaring problem with the French plan to rejoin the English and take Lyon. That quartermaster that informed the French of their plan to attack the city, that requested the aid of the French, well, he arrived on the 27th of August. Then the French raided a cattle ranch. They sent letters to the governor. They waited for the letters and the ransom to return. Then they spent days careening their ships. It was October. By the time they were done, late October, when they finally decided to go join the English. Now, to be fair, their ships were in desperate need of maintenance. They might not have made it to Lyon without good careening. The hulls were leaky, they were covered in barnacles, they had rotten sails and rotten ropes, and the masts were weak. It was a season for storms and tornadoes. They might not have had a choice in it. But still, by October... The English were already come to Lyon and gone. Dampier tells us of their approach to Rialejo, the port that served Lyon. They saw a volcano and knew that they were nearby Rialejo. He writes as they approached, quote, We had a tornado from the shore with much thunder, lightning, and rain, and such a gust of wind that we were all like to be foundered. In this extremity we put right afore the wind, every canoe's crew making what shift they could to avoid the threatening danger. The small canoes, being the most light and buoyant, mounted nimbly over the surges, but the great heavy canoes lay like logs in the sea, ready to be swallowed by every foaming billow. Some of our canoes were half full of water, yet kept two men constantly heaving it out. The fierceness of the wind continued about half an hour, and abated by degrees. And as the wind died away, so the fury of the sea abated. End quote. That's not an important passage necessarily, but I just love it. The pirates, the English pirates there, tried to row ashore after the storm passed, but they realized that they wouldn't be able to do so before dawn. So they rowed back out into the sea further from the shore to avoid notice. The next day, they elected to wait until evening to make for shore. See, the pirates didn't want to attack Realejo. It wasn't a rich or prosperous port. It was just a place where people unloaded cargo. They might find some goods to steal there, but it would warn Leon of their approach if they attacked, and that had to be avoided at all costs. Leon, on the other hand, was the home of 
officials and merchants and rich landowners. It had people of quality aplenty to ransom, and a town like that would have gold and pearls and rubies and untold quantities of silver. The pirates wanted to enter the harbor in their canoes, under cover of darkness, and row up the small river, what Dampier calls a creek, that would lead them to Lyon. As one might expect, that afternoon, at sea, waiting for the sun to sink, they experienced another bout of storm winds and tornadoes, but once again they weathered the storm. As night fell, though, they finally made their way into the harbor of Realejo. It was quiet, and it was still. The only noises were those of a small port. There were ships creaking lightly, there were winds, there were insects ashore. There was a little bit of noise from town, but... The people of Realejo bedded down early. There weren't raucous taverns. There would be work in the morning. The pirates had a pilot named Mr. Gage, who had actually been to Realejo and Leon before. Mr. Gage was in the first canoe. He led their little fleet through the harbor and into the creek that led inland. The pirates paddled silently, as silently as possible. But Realejo was quiet, and no matter how quietly you try to paddle, it will make noise. More than once the pirates heard footsteps coming near the creek, or voices in the town, and they were forced to stop rowing. There were tense moments, waiting for a Spaniard to cry out, to declaim that there were pirates in the river. But they always moved on. The pirates rode beyond Realejo, and when the town was finally sufficiently far behind them, Captain Davis ordered a halt. They needed daylight to be sure of how to get to Lyon. The river branched off, and they would have to wait until the sun rose to know how to get to town. But when dawn did come, what they hadn't realized in the night is that the shore here at the branch had breastworks upon it, large formations to guard the approach to Lyon by the river. As soon as they set out, as soon as they put back in the water, the pirates were spotted. Now, they weren't fired upon. The breastworks didn't have any soldiers at them, but they did have Native American runners, and they set off to give Leon word of the pirates. This was, well, it wasn't great, but all wasn't lost. Davis ordered the men ashore. They weren't going to take the river any farther. They occupied the breastworks there. It was a good place to guard the canoes and their approach back to the sea. Then he ordered 470 men to march inland toward Lyon, while 60 men were set to stay behind and guard the canoes to guard their escape. They were commanded by Peter Harris the Younger. And William Dampier was actually among those 60, so we don't have a first-hand account of the battle, but he did get accounts immediately after the fact, so it's not far removed. The town of Lyon lies on a large savanna. The countryside for miles around is gently rolling plains that are perfect for cattle and in places sugar. The only major landmark, aside from the city, is a nearby volcano, which seems to be a mainstay of this region of Nicaragua, but Lyon is sufficiently far away. Mr. Gage, the pilot on this little venture, called Lyon, quote, the pleasantest place in all America the paradise of the Indies, end quote. So the pirates marched on the city in open daylight. They split into four separate columns under four commanders, much as Henry Morgan had done when he marched on Panama. The advance force was 80 men strong, 
what Dampier calls the briskest men, and they were led by Captain Townsley. Behind him, at the head of the army proper, Charles Swan led a hundred men in what might be considered the vanguard, what Exquimelin called the forlorn. Then Edward Davis led the main body of the army, 170 men, and then William Knight led the rearguard, 120 men strong. It was, naturally, Captain Townsley who arrived at Lyon first. Now, that was more of a scouting expedition in strength. He wasn't intended to join battle if he could avoid it. He met 70 horsemen on the road there. He had 80 men afoot, 70 horsemen was a serious problem, but they turned around. They made for the city. Perhaps the Spanish feared to face a pirate horde on an open field, but Townsley was able to enter Leon at 3 p.m. He marched through the gates with no resistance right onto the main thoroughfare of Leon. The streets there were lined with tall houses, mostly built of stone, Then they all had balconies and gardens. There were well, they were the houses of the people of quality, of gentlemen and ladies. Several hundred yards up this boulevard, ahead of the pirates at the end of the road, at the center of town, the pirates could see the cathedral. This was the oldest stone church in town, the Church of San Nicolas Tolentino. It's a beautiful, large structure, strong, well-built. And then in the square, just before the church were 500 Spanish soldiers waiting for the pirates. Now we should, of course, remember that Dampier wasn't there. The man who was writing this account was not at this fight. He got the account from men who were at the fight, who may have had a reason to exaggerate the number of Spanish soldiers and their own prowess in battle, but there would still have been at least a couple of hundred Spanish soldiers waiting in the square. Between Captain Townsley's men and those foot soldiers, the two to five hundred, there was a force that we can quantify, a force of more than two hundred Spanish horsemen. That is, if we take a conservative estimate of the foot soldiers, two hundred and fifty, say, and two hundred Spanish horsemen, that's 450 versus 70 men under Captain Townsley. But they were on that boulevard, that narrow street. It would be a perfect choke point upon which to fight, especially to fight the cavalry. The horsemen, the Spanish, they charged down the boulevard. The cobblestones rang with the sound of horseshoes and men screaming battle cries in Spanish. Those Beautiful stone houses to either side would soon be awash in blood. But not English blood. Townsley ordered a volley. The pirates lined up when they saw the horsemen coming toward them. The front line of pirates would have knelt down with those behind them standing. And they fired. Now there is an age-old piece of wisdom surrounding battle. A commander should lead from behind, where he can see the whole of the battle before him. A commander that leads from the front may inspire his men in the charge, but he puts away his general's baton. He gives it up for a sword. That is to say, he gets caught in the thick of fighting. He's unable to command. When those commanders are charging a force of buccaneers down a narrow street and at the head of their forces, well, 
they will certainly inspire the men. But those English buccaneers were some of the finest marksmen in the world. If your commanders are at the head of a charge, they're all going to die. Imagine that you are on a horse, riding down that narrow lane, when a few lines ahead of you your commander falls from his horse and is trampled by the men behind him. Those men behind him also fall and are trampled in turn. Imagine that you were third in the line, now you're first in line. Your horse rode over your former commander, and now you are looking at a line of scruffy, filthy, hardened pirates, all aiming muskets at you. Now, if the Spanish horse had continued the charge, they would have broken the line of pirates. They could have rode over them and destroyed them. 70 men against 200 horsemen, there's no contest. But human nature doesn't work that way. Once the commanders were dead, the horsemen stopped and evaluated their situation. Then they turned around and ran. But that, even that must have been a slaughter. Dozens and dozens of horsemen, all on a narrow path, trying to turn around all at once, and then hollering for those behind them to turn around and retreat. It must have taken minutes for the entire column to stop, more minutes for them to turn around, and then a few more for them to get out of the street. All through that, the pirates continued to fire. Whatever horsemen were left alive fled back to the square and beyond. They ordered the foot soldiers forward and then continued to flee. Those foot soldiers did the right thing. They abandoned the square as soon as possible. The city was theirs, in effect. By four o'clock, Captain Swan arrived, and by five o'clock, Captain Davis. Now, Captain Knight was ordered to keep his men outside the city. He was there in case something went wrong while they were in the city to guard their retreat. But over the next few hours, his entire force of 120 men just sort of sauntered into Leon, one or two men at a time, just to see if there was anything of interest in the city. Leon officially belonged to the pirates. But the Spanish weren't beaten quite yet. The streets of Leon belonged to the pirates. Indeed, everything above ground belonged to the pirates. But remember those cellars and tunnels that were built under Leon? They were being used in their full effect at this moment. The runners had given the people of Lyon plenty of time to gather their belongings and retreat underground. The women and children were all safe. The elderly were all safe. And even those soldiers that ran made it to those passages, which would allow them to guard from the pirates should they find the entrance to one of their passages. More to the point, they were hidden away. It seemed as though the town was abandoned. But when the pirates least expected it, in the early hours of the morning, a small force of Spanish soldiers came out of those tunnels and ambushed a party of pirates. This, well, the ambush went well on the part of the Spanish, and it created what seems to me to be one of the greatest tragedies I have yet to read about in the entirety of the pirate mythos up to this point. There was a pirate named Mr. Swan, no relation to Captain Swan, just a regular soldier, that marched on Leon. He, well, as a young man, he had served in the English Civil War under Oliver Cromwell. He fought in an Irish uprising and then moved on to fight in Wales, potentially against one of Henry Morgan's relatives. 
When Oliver Cromwell announced the Western design, that is his plan to attack, capture, and occupy Jamaica, Mr. Swan was one of those that signed up for the voyage. He sailed with that very first English force to arrive at what would become Port Royal. Since the year 1655, he had lived in Jamaica, and for that entire time, he had served as a privateer. The details of his life are not known, beyond the fact that he served as a privateer all that time. He was, potentially, present for, well, everything that the English buccaneers had been up to ever since we introduced Henry Morgan. He may have attacked Santiago de Cuba and Campeche with Christopher Mings. He may have sacked Grenada with Henry Morgan in 1666. He may have been not far from here decades earlier. He may have sailed with Edward Morgan or Edward Mansvelt. He may have been there at Maracaibo or Puerto Principe or Portobello. He was almost certainly present when Henry Morgan attacked Panama in 1671. I mean, everyone was there. This man, Mr. Swan, he was probably at the Logwood camps in the 1670s and then in the Bay of Campeche. It's even probable that he was there on the first Pacific adventure under Coxon and Sharp. Mr. Swan, though, he wasn't a commander. He wasn't anybody of note, anybody of rank. He wasn't important. We don't know if he left any children or grandchildren behind him. He probably never owned a home. He certainly never bought any land. He was a soldier and a privateer, and following that, a pirate. His home was the ocean. He belonged on a ship. William Dampier writes, quote, His name was Swan. He was a very merry, hearty old man, and always used to declare he would never take quarter. He was a stout old gray-headed man, aged about eighty-four. He would not accept the offer of our men made him to tarry ashore, but said he would venture as far as the best of them. And when surrounded by the Spaniards, he refused to take quarter, but discharged his gun amongst them, keeping a pistol still charged, so they shot him at a distance. End quote. Mr. Swan's unit was ambushed by the Spanish in the wee hours of the morning. And let's not pretend he was a hero here. The Spanish ambushed them in defense of their home. But Mr. Swan actually kept the Spanish at bay with a single loaded pistol. This gave several other men the chance to escape the ambush. But then a Spanish musketeer shot him dead. Now, I want to avoid any ham-fisted analogies to avoid suggestions that Mr. Swan was somehow representative of the age of the buccaneers. You know, he's not a totem of them. He was just an old sea dog. But I think about the things he must have seen. I mean, everything up until now. Port Royal, Tortuga, the Laguna de Terminos, the Mosquito Coast. Imagine the tales he could tell over a glass of rum. And here, at this battle at Lyon, well... It's arguably the last battle of the Buccaneers. Now, I know I've made that claim before, but ignore that. I made that claim about the sack of Campeche by Lorho de Graff on July 6, 1685. This battle at Lyon was happening on the 11th of September, 1685. And Mr. Swan, an English buccaneer ever since there were English buccaneers, was killed. And this battle at Lyon, where Mr. Swan died was the last battle of the buccaneers. 
Now, it's not the last battle that any buccaneers, individual buccaneers, would be involved with, but by that point, those later fights, times had changed. When we look back on it now, we can realize that the era of the buccaneers was well and done. The ambush in which Mr. Swan was killed was a surprise. I mean, obviously it was a surprise. All ambushes are surprises, but this one came from a direction that it should not have. Those tunnels, well, they worked wonders. The pirates could clear an entire section of town, check every house, take anything of value they happened to find there. They would know that that entire section of town, including the church, was empty. And then, all of a sudden, a squad of troops would appear and set to firing upon them. And when the pirates returned and fought them back, the attackers had vanished. The Spanish did manage to capture one pirate in that ambush that killed Mr. Swan, a man named Mr. Smith. Now, Smith spoke Spanish fluently, and actually, surprisingly enough, he was actually known by the governor's wife there in Lyon. Smith was questioned thoroughly, and the entire time he lied through his teeth. He bluffed brilliantly. He told the Spanish that there were 1,000 pirates in and around Lyon, and an additional 500 pirates back at the boats. That's, well, they had less than 500 men in the entirety of the Pacific, not including the French. That's over 1,000 more pirates that Mr. Smith convinced the governor existed than were actually there. The governor believed him throughout all this. The pirates under Davis, using this knowledge, attempted to ransom Leon for 300,000 pieces of eight. The governor capitulated to this demand, as Dampier says, day after day. That is to say, every day he agreed to pay the ransom, but the money never arrived. Davis realized that the governor was stalling for time. He was waiting for more troops to arrive. So Captain Davis arranged a prisoner transfer. Mr. Smith would be given back to the pirates, and a gentlewoman of standing that he had would be traded. When the prisoner transfer was complete, Davis ordered the pirates to burn Leon to the ground. Now much of Leon was built from stone. The churches that were there, that were built of stone, are still there, and some of them you can actually see some of the memories of that raid in 1685. Those churches happen to carry memories of many tumultuous times, of revolutions and revolts throughout the centuries, but those tunnels underneath them did their job. They were truly helpful. The women and children escaped, and the burning left everyone unscathed. Everyone was safe underground. In fact, it was the pirates who were in the most danger. Next time, we'll follow the pirates through that danger out of Nicaragua, and into the vast Pacific Ocean. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everyone who has become a patron on Patreon, I couldn't do this without you. As well as everybody who has given us a shout-out or suggested the show to their friends or given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. That's how people learn about the Pirate History Podcast, and I wouldn't be able to continue it without you. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. 
After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight